Amen. My voice is a little bit over-fellowshipped. Yeah. Amen. I brought some things over the last few weeks that were a little bit, I think I'm going to turn it down. Is it too loud a little bit, too loud? Let me, let me turn it down just a little bit. You know, when we got the soundboard up here, um, we just walk over and adjust stuff, so don't worry about it. We're not worried about it. Uh, but I, I labored a little bit to bring some things that uh, are just really felt kind of teaching, as, as you know, talking about Echad, Shema, our God is one. And um, tonight, I'm not really going to bring you anything new uh, as much as I'm going to preach to the choir. I'm going to hopefully encourage you in things that God places upon my heart that I feel like are important. And I think sometimes we have to be reminded of them. I think it's really important that we uh, are challenged and encouraged in this time to be bold, to be infinitely bold. I think that we are, anybody ever feel like you're just under a lot of scrutiny and pressure by the world? I mean, that's the truth is, is we live our, our faith out loud. And when we do that, um, you know, we're, we're just constantly bombarded. And sometimes it's easy for us to buckle a little bit under that pressure. And so I think it's important that we are hopefully inspired and encouraged to continue with that boldness in our faith. Amen. I want to, uh, this scripture just came to my heart as we were singing, and it actually kind of goes along um, with what I'm going to be preaching tonight. I just want to give it to you. Hebrews 10, 38. Now the just shall live by faith. The Greek of this passage and the other places that this exact same verbiage is used, the just shall live by faith, is the word ek, and it means out of from within. It's not, faith is not something we use. Faith is not something we bandstand with. It's not an instrument that we go out and conquer financial debt with. Uh, faith is not an instrument that we use to perform miracles. Faith is the position that we hold in Christ. <clears throat> and we live from there. The just live from that position of faith. But listen to this. But if any man draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now, I'm not going to talk to you tonight about the process of salvation, which we did over the course uh, of time a month or so ago. But I want, to, I want to just present you with the dilemma that we are facing in the church today. Again, I'm preaching to the choir. I know you all believe this with me, but hopefully you can be reminded and emboldened to act upon this. But the dilemma that we face in the church today in America today, in American Christianity, as much as Barack Obama wants to say that this is not a Christian nation, it still is a nation that would by and large classify itself as a Christian nation. The predominant faith of our country, clearly what our founding fathers were, as much as they want to try to make them theists or those who really weren't interested in faith at all. They were at least men who had faith regardless. But beyond that, 
we are in a condition in this country that while many of us call ourselves Christian, the majority of our country would call itself a Christian uh, nation. We face the dilemma that many are drawing back. Many are backing off of Christian faith. We hear that the prevailing thought, especially within, let's say, the charismatic and Pentecostal um, movement, evangelical movement, may I don't know about the Baptist side as much, but we hear a lot from the charismatic and the, um, the Pentecostal type movements that we are on the precipice of the last and great harvest. Anybody hear that? We hear all the time that this is the time where millions of souls are coming to the Lord. I don't, I don't know what they're boasting now, but I remember a few uh, years ago, TBN had said something like that they had had 17 million souls come to Christ because of uh, TBN, which I don't think they can come to Christ because of TBN. That's a side note. Um, however, this proclamation that there is a great harvest that so many multiplied millions are going to come into the kingdom in the last days. This is what's constantly being pushed. But the problem is, is that uh, there's a few scriptures that I, I just, I'm not going to turn there because uh, at the sake of time, I just want to clip them off for you. You can look them up later. Second Timothy 3.3 3 says, in the last days, perilous times are going to come. First Timothy 4.1 says, in the latter times, Many will depart from the faith. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3 says that the, the day shall not come except there be a falling away. Matthew 24 and 11, uh, false prophets are going to arise and deceive many. And Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, 14, that the narrow is the way, straight is the way, and narrow is the gate. And everybody say few. Few there be that find it. So while the idea is that there is a lot of people going to come into the kingdom, the truth of the scripture says that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to leave the kingdom. There's going to be an exodus from the truth. How many would look at our state of Christianity and say, I can see some exodus? Let me just give you one example I read. I could give you a lot. But let me just give you one example I read just this week, I think it was, might have been last week. The First Baptist Church of Orlando. Now, when I think of First Baptist Church, I think of pretty fundamental. How many of you think really fundamental? Like you just, they, they don't, they wouldn't like us lifting our hands and, you know, really fundamental. Going to really get the, the Bible out and they're going to teach it just simply and directly. And I like that. I like that. The First Baptist Church of Orlando just openly baptized an openly gay man and his husband who go to the church. They claim to have multiple openly gay lesbian couples that are part of the membership of that body. Now, does that sound like the end time harvest or the ones who draw back unto perdition? And the reason I bring this up is if you follow this logic of the end time harvest, what we are seeing churches do 
is we are seeing churches widen the gate. Jesus says it's narrow, and we're seeing churches expand the gate because we're trying to get a lot of people in, but Jesus isn't worried about getting a lot of people in. We've got a whole misconception about what the Lord believes about his kingdom and about salvation and those who are going to be a part of it. And, and you know, obviously we could preach for weeks just on this topic, but it presents this, this wrong idea. And so we see what's happening is that, especially starting even with the young people, that we are, we are widening the gate. And so you're, you're bringing in all the world, all the world's accoutrements to try to draw kids to come to the Lord. Now you're seeing, we got, to get, we got the kids in, we got to get the parents in. So, man, we got to really be careful the message we're preaching. We got to, we got to be soft and we don't want to, you know, just barnstorm this thing. We got to ease into it and we don't want to say things that offend people. And this is becoming the predominant message. Even many people who I grew up um, around and know personally, who at one time preached a message that would have been strong and would have challenged the faith in people's lives, now preach a message that challenges no one. And if you expect to go to church, I've always said this and you all come here, but if you expect to go to church and you feel like that you should leave without a challenge, you're in the wrong church. Because the fact is we are flesh. The fact is we walk in this flesh. The fact is we war with this flesh. And if you hear the word of God, it's always going to be challenging you because his word is challenging your flesh. No flesh is going to glory in his presence. And so every time you hear the word of God, it should pierce your flesh. It should aggravate the, the flesh man inside of you, it should provoke you to repentance about the way you think. That's how God's word works in us. It does not come to coddle us. It does not come to warm us up. And yes, God is faithful. Chris was testifying just now uh, to see that one of our close friends who's gone through some stuff and, and now is drawing back to the Lord and, and the Lord is drawing. And we know that his arms are open, but at the same time, when we get there, he's not, he's not softening it so we'll stay. He's challenging us. He's going to challenge us at the core of the things that are driving us out. He's going to challenge us at the core of the things that are causing sin and wickedness to prevail in our lives and in our culture. I see this happen all the time and it's driving me nuts. It is a pet peeve, as you well know. But I see this all the time. You take little young musicians, artists, and their lifelong goal is to become famous, to become like the world. And they're in the church. And so what you do is you prop them up and, and in, their, in their mind and in the church's mind, now we, we get them and boy, they've got a voice or they, they could really dance or they could do whatever. And we get them looking like the world and acting like the world. And then eventually, when they finally get to the place of fame, then they'll have a great platform where they can really teach about Jesus. It's an error that's made constantly. We look at Lauren Daigle. I mean, let's name call. Anybody who doesn't know whether, whether uh, homosexuality is right or wrong needs to be name called. They need to be kicked out of the church. They need to stop being embraced. This is happening all over culture. 
Not too long ago, in fact, at that point, I said, we're no longer singing. I'm not listening to anything Hillsongs. I'm not listening to anything Bethel. We're not doing anything. Hillsongs removed the requirements from their, their uh, school there in Australia. And once it was, hey, fornication's an objectionable offense and you can be kicked out. And homosexuality was on the list. They left fornication on, but they removed homosexuality. I don't know how you could possibly be a homosexual without fornication. Why? Softening it. We want to get people to fame. We want to get people to prominence. Listen, if you keep your mouth shut long enough at work, if you, if you just don't you know, ruffle any feathers long enough, then maybe you'll get to a point where then you can. No, it's the wrong concept. The idea that the world would love us and would like who we are in Christ is an error. James 4.4 4 says that he who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So while, you t- while you're training up people and young people, hey, grow up and when you get the opportunity, man, you can really make it look like the world, act like the world, do what they're doing, and man, at some point, you're going to have a great opportunity to win them. And God says, listen, if you love the world, you will become my enemy. The world is always the enemy of the gospel. Worldliness is always the enemy of the message of Christ. Pet peeve number two, the modern preacher. Look at the pastors that are pastoring our churches. They look like the world. They look like the gay world. Filling our pulpits. Say, well, it's just, you know, that's just a pet peeve. Well, it is, but it's also a scriptural pet peeve of mine and pastors. Effeminate men. Soft, weak-kneed cowards who bow to every cultural norm, every social justice message, so as not to, for, not to offend any forgotten groups. And most now are becoming even afraid to speak against the LGBTQ alphabet mafia. They're afraid. They're terrified that if I, if I speak out and I say, listen, this is wrong. Do you know that it's literally an imprisonable offense in Canada right now to speak out against LGBT? Do you know there's laws on the books that prevent you as a parent from trying to correct homosexuality in your children? It's happening all over the world. And we live in a luxury in America where it has not hit yet, but it is coming and it's not coming on the, on the winds of the world. It's coming through the leadership of the church who are afraid to stand up and say, we will not bow on this issue. It's being ushered in by people who are looking and say, listen, the ends justify the means. And so we've got to understand that if we get shut down as a church, who could we minister to? So it would be better for us to keep our mouth shut about whatever the issues are in order that we can keep the doors open and really reach people. But what are we reaching people with if we're not reaching them with the truth? And literally, I know we can feel even hearing this like, we already know this, but it is prevailing. It's expanding. It's not slowing down. It's not backing off. I think of this all the time, and I want to remind you because I see it now everywhere. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus looks at the, the Jews and he says to them, 
what is it that you went out to see when you went out to see John? You went out to, to see John the Baptist. What was it that you expected to see? You're hearing about what's going on. Did you expect to see a reed that just lays over? Did you expect to see someone who was effeminate? Literally the word he uses. Malakoi in the Greek. Someone who is soft. It, this isn't even talking about homosexuality. This goes way beyond that. It's an, it's an effeminate, soft nature. Men are not created to be this way. And he is, he is drawing the parallel between what John the Baptist was and what clearly the priesthood had become. You know what the priesthood was doing? The priesthood was dressed in fine linens. They were afraid to get dirty. I guarantee they never saw dirt under their fingernails because medial work was not theirs. And John is out wearing camel skins and a leather girdle. Why is he eating locust and wild honey? Because it's not good. That's why. It's not because he, it's the best tasting. It's because he is, he is being drawn as the opposite of what is standing. And I, I just, it is ringing in my spirit over and over again. I know I hit it every six months or whatever. But we have to be emboldened. We need our men to stand up and be men. And we need our women to celebrate men. We need to celebrate manliness. We need to celebrate masculinity. There is nothing toxic about it. God made us to be this way. And if you are going to function in the kingdom, it also says that uh, Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven suffered violence and the violent take it by Force. Now, this isn't about going out and bombing abortion clinics or beating people up. That's not the context. But what he is saying is that you are not going to accidentally preach the gospel. You're not going to accidentally get into the kingdom. It is going to be by effort and by labor. And you're going to work and you're going to have to take hold of it. It's not going to be on accident. We're not going to accidentally preach this message of truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 lists this same word, malakoi, as a sin that prohibits you from being in the kingdom. This is why it's a pet peeve, and this is why it has got to be talked about. Something that drives me nuts is that, is that when you turn on and you, and you go uh, listen to, or, or maybe if you went to a church of the holiness movement, and whether it's Trinitarian or apostolic, you're going to get in there and they're going to be preaching at the women. There's a lot of preaching going on at the women, what they wear, whether they cut their hair, whether they, whether they got makeup on. But I never hear a single message calling the men to stand up and be men. I never hear a single message telling those, those little boys wearing the gay pants to get their pants down on top of their shoes. Never once. They don't talk about masculinity because it's toxic to the world. But what we hear is, oh man, the women got to toe the line. I think it's time for the men to toe the line. I think it's time for us to stand up. We've got to bear this thing. It's our duty. It's us. The leadership that God is expecting out of us is not telling your wife what to do or your children what to do. It's saying, hey, this is going to be hard. There's a wave coming at us. You guys get behind me and I'm going to break the wave. And if you've got to step on my back to get over me because I'm dead, then I'm going, to, I'm going to take care of what has to be done. This is the idea that we've got to have concerning the gospel. 
Yes, and I believe it's acted out in our daily life. It's our job to be men. It's our job to be masculine. I don't preach a lot at women because I'm not one. I don't know what it takes to be a woman, but I know what it takes to be a man. And, and the, so the idea that we should put that down or, or malign that to me offends me. I'm going to take a rabbit trail for just a second because we do have little ones. And just per chance, somebody cares to listen to this. I want to have at least it ring in their ears one time. Parents, if you have boys, raise them to be men. Now, obviously, we want to raise them to be godly. But if you raise them to be soft, you're raising them to be sinners. So I'm going to raise them to be godly. If you raise them to be soft, you're raising them to be sinners. If you raise them to be effeminate, you are prohibiting them from being a part of the kingdom. So while we think, I'm going to focus on God first, you better make sure they're acting like men. Make your boys do boy things. Everybody say amen. Get them out of dance. Get them out of ballet. Dustin's girls do ballet. Keyword, girls. Get them out of cheerleading. Get them out mowing the lawn. Get them out working in the summer. I tell Brandon to Jake, push them out of a tree. Rub some dirt in their wounds. I mean, quite literally, we are softening what it means to be a man. And I believe this. We were just, I think it was Rod and I were talking about it uh, yesterday. Jesus did not select a single sissy to be an apostle. Every single one of these guys, they were not rich. They were not wealthy. People want to say, well, they were pretty educated businessmen. Oh no, they were rough and tumble dudes. Yes, they owned businesses. Peter had a fishing business. I would not call, I've watched a little bit of the deadliest catch and I wouldn't think anything, but those guys are pretty rough. Would not look at those guys as hyper-educated. In fact, as a matter of fact, I would look at those guys and say, that's probably exactly what Peter was. Because this is what everybody on the day of Pentecost did. They looked at these guys and said, well, what's going on? These are what? Uneducated men. They're not respected citizens of the community. They're rough and tumble dudes who are dirty. They smell like fish guts. They are um, militant uh, militia groups. They're tax collectors. These guys are men. He did not select one soft sissy, not one. How do I become a godly man? You can't become godly unless you become a man. You following my logic? Well, sometimes we want to get everything so spiritual. But there is natural things that we do that enact spiritual things in our life. So when I begin to stand up and act as God created me to act, yes, there is a lot of things I got to stop acting like that are natural too. But when I get up and act as God created me to act, then I am opening to the Lord to use me as he intended me to be used. God didn't make me to play nursemaid to children. It's not what God made. Come on, Ben, say amen. It's not what he made us to do. 
Why is it that they run to mom when they fall down? Because us dads, we're not that good at that. Just, we're not. Why? Because God didn't make us. I'm going to get off that one. Dads, if you have daughters, help her to find a husband who is a man. You have to weigh in here. We got a lot of dads in here with daughters who aren't married. You have to weigh in. Now, I, I don't believe that I determine for my, my daughters who they're going to marry. I believe that's their decision. But I am going to weigh in. You have to determine as dads, as grandpas. Now, for, for some of you, my dad, Charlie, who else is a grandpa in here that's got daughters coming up? Frank, Rick, now you got little ones. You have a little while to figure it out. You can figure it out, but... You're going to have to help them to determine whether this boy is effeminate or not. Don't let mom do it. Mom's going to always think the feminine characteristics are cute. Oh no, listen to me. Moms think the feminine characteristics are cute. Oh, that's just so cute that that guy does that. No, no, no. Men aren't cute. Men don't do cute things. Men don't do things, no, not, not, uh, no. We're, we're not the pretty ones. God didn't make us to be the pretty ones. We shouldn't be doing the things that draw that kind of attention. What we need to do as men is we need to weigh in and we need to say, listen, that young man isn't a man, so it doesn't work. It's really important. Don't judge him by current culture. Well, he has abilities and, and those abilities are in that feminine realm. He needs to get saved. He needs the, an interaction with the Spirit of God in his life to turn him from those little effeminate qualities that he's got into the man that God wants him to be. Number one quality that I'm looking for, Shane. I'm looking for a man. Yeah, can we mess up as men? Yes, absolutely. Can we see men who, who go over the top and they're out of control? Absolutely. But God deals with men. Peter can't shut his stinking mouth. Every time he turns around, he's putting his foot in his mouth. But God loves, Jesus loves Peter. Why? Because he's a man. Because he's functioning with passion and he is willing. Hey, everybody else is going, with you, going away from you. I'm going to stand with you. Yeah, he's wrong. Yeah, he pulls out a sword and he cuts off somebody's ear. God's not worried about that. He fixes the ear. Put the sword away. God's going to deal with you. I'm not worried about men being men. We will, as, as, as a group of brothers, keep each other accountable. Acting like women. That's what I'm worried about. That's a far bigger problem than us being too masculine today. Girls, you need to find a man that is quick to take on challenges. What am I looking for? What, what am I trying to find? I'm looking for a man that's quick to take on challenges. That's quick to get dirty. That's quick to be around men. And obviously loves the cause of Christ. But those are the characteristics that you're looking for. I know we don't hear this. Nobody's preaching this. And you know why? Because the guys who should be preaching it are the effeminate ones. We're waiting for a bunch of softies to get up and tell other men how to be men. It's not going to happen. 
Somebody's got to be saying this. This isn't something that I just need to be saying. This is something that you all need to be saying. Don't worry about what the world thinks about it. Every time you get an opportunity, men, to talk to young men, it's our job that older men, that we teach the younger men how they should act. Paul says so. It's the order of the kingdom. Because of the weak preachers in America, our churches are full of Christians. Pet peeve number three. Who look exactly like the world. Who watch every vile thing that the world watches. They partake in everything that the world partakes in. They dance like the world. They live like the world. They party like the world. They drink like the world. And you know why? Because Carl Lentz at Hillsong's New York is teaching them to do it. And he's just the one who got caught. Because that same stuff is going on. You want to know why it's going on? Because men are afraid to stand up and say, whoa, time out here. You cannot follow Jesus and love this world. But Pastor Rodney, people are going to leave. Yeah. And you know how I know they're going to leave? Because God said they were going to leave. That in the last days, what's going to happen? People are going to depart from the faith. So maybe part of your message is you need to stop worrying about trying to bring people in and maybe we need to worry about getting some people out. That's the message Jesus is preaching. He's not worried about you coming in. He's saying, listen, I've got a standard and if you're not interested in the standard, I've got a door for you. And it's not the entrance door, it's the exit door. So we find ourselves in this dilemma. Do we continue to preach the gospel and sit and judge the effectiveness of the message by whether the church grows numerically? Do we preach a gospel and determine what we are going to say by what this government does in the next few years? Do we allow Next time, do we allow the government to shut the doors of the church? It's a question we're going to have to answer. I heard, I heard a preacher say, just a, a few guys I follow, and I like them. There's very few. One of them said uh, a few months ago, said, if your church has not reopened, you are clearly in the wrong church. And I would say that of about a year ago, year and a half ago. We have to think about, Satan always comes in with this thought, like I said, that if, if you keep the doors open, it's better than getting the doors shut. But at what cost? At what cost do we keep the doors open? At what, at what expense of souls that should be in the kingdom that are not because we do not preach the truth because we're afraid and we're trying to keep people in who are really out? What expense does that, does that weigh in the eternal destiny of people's lives? And I would say far more greatly. Even the Lord himself says that there are going to be those that say, Lord, Lord, remember me? And he's going to say, I don't know who you are. They know his name. 
They clearly know who he is, but they don't, he doesn't know who they are. And so I want to make sure that nobody here, I'm teaming up with our pastor to make sure that nobody here will not be able to know who Jesus is. That nobody here is going to get to, get to heaven and God's going to say, I don't know you. This passage in John 8, anybody do your homework? Dustin asked that. Pastor gave us homework last week. And I'm thankful he did because something jumped out at me that I literally had not seen. John chapter 8 and verse 30. We know the beginning of John 8. Woman caught in adultery. They bring her to Jesus. And he says, who's without sin, cast the first stone. He's writing on the ground. Everybody supposes whatever he's writing. I have no clue what he's writing. Um, anybody who says they know what he's writing, they're guessing. We really don't know. But all of that's going on. He who is without sin, cast the first stone. Uh, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. <laughs> he sins her on his way. And I want you to look at verse 30. And he spake these words, and many believed on him. That's pretty awesome. Who is it talking about? The Jews. The same ones who brought her and the crowd that gathered. And maybe it's not the exact ones that brought the woman. But the crowd that had gathered was, was a bunch of Jews. Some of them, I'm sure, did linger. Many of them believed on him. So let's see how carefully... Jesus navigated around the sensitive issues in order to keep these ones who had just believed into the kingdom. You got a whole bunch of brand new believers, ready-made disciples. Just look at how carefully he navigated this. Many believed on him. Verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews, who, what Jews? the ones who believed on him. I want to make clear, we're not talking about a different group of people here. <clears throat> Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my words, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I don't know exactly why he would say this at this time, Except he knew this was going to strike a nerve. God has a way of doing that in our lives. God's going to say things to you that strike a nerve in you. You know why? Because those are the things that are keeping you from being his disciple. Those are the things that are inhibiting you on your walk. So he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That doesn't seem super inflammatory, does it? I mean, if I say that to you tonight, any of you mad at me? If you stay in Jesus' words, you'll be his disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And oh, this is great. We love it. Not so with the Jews. Look at the next verse. And they answered him, we're Abraham's seed. We're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou we shall be free? See, he knows there's an issue here. He, in his wisdom, understands this is what's going to prohibit them from coming in. 
But be careful, Jesus. These young believers, they, man, they might misunderstand what you're saying here. You don't want to offend them. These are brand new Christians. We got to be really careful. We, we don't want to say things to brand new Christians that would make them turn away. We don't want to say things to brand new Christians like, man, you need, to get, you need to get your life directed to Christ and you need to stop your life of sin and you need to be in the house of the Lord every time the doors are open and if you're not, you're not going to make We don't want to say that kind of stuff to brand new Christians. Why? Well, I mean, that's heavy. That's, that's hard. That's probably going to offend someone. Be real careful here, Jesus. Look down at the 36th verse. I'm just going to skip through it for the sake of time. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Where did that come from? These are the ones who believed on him. These are the ones who literally just a few verses, we're probably talking less than a few minutes ago, just, hey, we believe in you, Jesus. This is awesome. And immediately he strikes a chord when he starts talking about the, the requirements of being in his kingdom, knowing truth, and really truth is what's going to set you free. Now it sets them off. Now, they haven't said anything about killing him. Not up to this point. But he understands where this goes. When you do not receive the word of the Lord, you will begin to assault the one speaking it. You're always going to attack the message when it's not what you want to hear. And when you don't receive it. And so Jesus says, listen, I know this is all great. I know you're Abraham's seed, but I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're looking to kill me. Yeah, Jesus, why would you say something like that? It sounds like the modern Democrat party. Man, they... That shooter wouldn't have shot people if, if people didn't make him mad. It's on the people who made him mad. It's their fault. Jesus, it's your fault. It, don't say things like this. This is how you get people flustered. Skip down to verse 40. But now you seek to kill me. Again, he's just going to lay it out there. A man who has done what? Told you the truth. Which I have heard of God. Abraham didn't do this. Verse 41, you do the deeds of your father. Then say they unto him. Now, we're going to see the change. Up until now, what are you talking about? What can we kill you? What are you talking about? We believe in you. But now you're going to see the tone change. He's directly assaulted the issues in their life meaningfully. And now what do they say to him? We have not been born of fornication. We have one father, even God. So now it becomes clear. Now the lines are set. Now it becomes obvious that they are completely opposed to Jesus. Can you believe on Jesus and not believe his words? This is the dilemma we got a bunch of preachers telling people all over America that you can believe on Jesus and be saved and not do what he says to do. But I'm telling you, it's an assassination spirit. It will always assault the true gospel. That message 
are the people who are going to challenge you. The world, yes, it hates the gospel, but some in the world are lost and they're going to want to hear it. But the church who is not redeemed and not free is going to always attack the true message of the gospel. You want to get people fired up? Start saying stuff like this. The true colors come through. Jesus, maybe if you just seasoned your words a little bit. You just, just season. No, you don't have to come so strong. Pastor, if you would just dull it down a bit. It's pretty, pretty direct. Anybody ever heard anybody walk out of church on Sunday morning and say, man, that's a pretty hard word. No, I know you've all heard that. I know most of you have said that. It's not a bad thing. It's okay to say that. The idea that we can tone it down enough where people would want to receive is, is a false concept as far as the gospel goes. Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot do what? Can't receive my word. You're not listening to me. That's why you're not understanding. Jesus is basically saying, listen, I'm going to make it really plain. My grandma, a quote I love, I, I don't really, I, she died when I was nine, my, my dad's mom. But one of the things he says, she always said, is plain talk is easily understood. I love Jesus for his plain talk. He's not beating around the bush here. He says, listen, this isn't hard to understand. You're not misunderstanding me because I'm saying things that you can't understand. You're misunderstanding me because you're not listening to me. I'm trying to make it as clear as I can. Verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. And he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Now that's just plain uncalled for. That's just plain uncalled for. Why? I mean, why would Jesus feel like he has the right to go around calling people the children of the devil? If you got up and called somebody the children of the devil, I guarantee you'd have about 25 Oklahoma Bible Belt Christians chastising you within about three seconds. Why? Decorum, man. We were just talking about it at lunch today. You know, what, what did we bothered us so bad about Trump? Just wouldn't use decorum. Tweeting mean things. Didn't care about how people felt. And I don't think Trump's a Christian, but in that sense, he was a lot more like Jesus than a lot of Christians are. Jesus is not worried about your opinion. He's not worried about your feelings. He doesn't care about your emotions. He wants to tell you the truth because the truth is what liberates. And so faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you don't have people in your life who will tell you, no, you've got the wrong group of friends. You don't have people in your life who will stand in your face and say, you're doing the wrong thing. You've got the wrong group of friends. Faithful are the, or, or deceitful are the kisses of the enemy. You did somebody coddling you telling you, oh, you're all good where you're at, everything's fine. That's not a friend. That's no friend and certainly no gospel preacher. Look at verse 52. 
Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, If a man keep my sayings, he shall never taste death. 58. And Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Because, or sorry, before Abraham was, I am. 59. Then they took up stones to cast at him. Because Jesus hid himself, he went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. In one 10-minute conversation, Jesus took a potential group of disciples and turned them into murderers. You following me? In one 10-minute conversation. That is crazy to me. Because we are programmed to think we need to do whatever we can to keep from offending people. And Jesus literally directly assaulted and triggered exactly what would produce the true intentions of their heart. I think you need to think about that this week. He was not in the least bit concerned about what they might think or how maybe if he could have got them into the group, then maybe through some years of training, they would have come to believe the gospel that the rest of the disciples believed. But what's the difference between the original 12 disciples and these guys? Jesus goes to those guys and say, says to them, hey, I want you to follow me. And what do they do? Follow him. Jesus says to this group of potential disciples, you're going to know the truth and the truth's going to make you free. And what happens? It triggers them. So we have to begin to question then, are we really willing, and I know we are, like I said, I'm preaching to the choir, but I want you to be emboldened because I don't believe that this, the onus of this gospel falls upon my shoulders and dad's shoulders and everybody else just gets to sit idly by I believe we're all active ministers. And if we are to have impact, why did God move us to Claremore? Why are we here? I have not the slightest clue yet. But I'm believing that the result, I don't know that we're going to win Claremore to Jesus or we're going to have a huge church. I really don't care about any of that. But I believe that every one of you is enlisted to proclaim the truth, the message of Christ. And if you are concerned about what people think, you will not speak the truth. Can I give you a word of warning? Don't look at the potential believer. Don't look at the potential disciple and find common ground with them. Look at the potential believer, the potential disciple, and find the reasons why they're not going to follow. And directly confront it by the Spirit of God. Because if you speak the truth, and they receive the truth, what's the result of the truth? Freedom. But if you see the need and you don't deal with the need because you're afraid of it, what's the result of that? Bondage. So we've got a church, we've got churches full of people who are bound in sin because preachers are afraid to preach the truth. We have a dilemma in front of us. There is another, finally, going to be done. 
there is another alternative, unhealthy gospel that we must prepare for. Shock jock preachers. They've risen up in the last few years. These are the guys who are going to say things to provoke agitation. It almost sounds like Jesus. They're, well, we're going to confront the truth. We're going to get it out there where people can hear it. I'm going to tell you one of them because he's all over the internet and you need to be careful. Anybody ever heard of Greg Locke? Greg Locke is one of these, and I know, some, I know a man personally who has become one of these. He's going to prophesy things all the time, and he's, he's declaring, well, he declared that Trump was going to be president for four more years uninhibited. And he said, if it's not true, I'm going to step down and get a real job, which makes me think he needs to. But he didn't. He's still lying. Still getting up and prophesying, lying. He didn't follow through with his own words. There's a lot of these guys who are rising up. And, and what are they dealing with? They're dealing with the social issues. And let, let me tell you why we've got to be careful. Because they're saying things we like. Okay? Things like, Greg Locke, you cannot be a Democrat and be a Christian. That's true. Everybody say Amen. You can't be pro-abortion and be a Christian, period. You can't be pro-tranny, queer, lesbian, groomer, whatever else you want to call it, and be a Christian. You can't be pro-homosexual marriage and be a conservative, much less a Christian. So what's the problem? That's not the gospel. The problem is shock jock preachers are rising up and they're saying things like that. And man, we can really get behind that. I love that. But that's not the gospel. That's America. It's not the gospel. I'll never forget this. And I have said this before, but it is forever literally embedded in my mind. We went down to Red Bluff to, it was... Uh, How many of you know, have heard the hoppers Yahweh? Most, most of you, something would be okay. Ooh, Yahweh. Oh, that's good. Really good. And every time I hear that, I'm just, man, it, I get, wow, that's awesome. Talk, singing about our Lord. And I watched, we were in the upper deck and the Lord must have had us up there for a reason. I watched and I, that all the disciples were with us. That's right. And I looked down across the audience and everybody's sitting there. I mean, it's emotional. It's powerful sitting there. And they were getting ready to go to break. Take the little siesta in the middle, rest their voices. And right before that, or it might have been right after that. I don't remember which one. The next song, America. They started singing America and people all over the building started standing up, putting their hands up. And I'm like, what? <laughs> What are we worshiping here? Yeah, I love America, but when I'm more moved by 
American song than I am by a beautiful song about who our God is. Something's wrong here. When you're building churches based upon preachers who will get up and speak about pro-Second Amendment, I love it. But it's not the gospel. Let's take a straw poll. How many of you love General Michael Flynn? I do. I like him. I'll put my hand right up there and then trick you. I love him. He made a mistake last week. He literally said at a convention, American churches need to be reading the Constitution from the pulpits as much as they are the Bible. Why is that a problem? Because it's not the gospel. We can proclaim this stuff. I'm not about assaulting the man. I, I like him. I think he's a good man. But we can proclaim this stuff. And if we want to get a big crowd, let's just preach that. But you want to get a small crowd, start talking about who Jesus is. Take some time to lay a foundation and actually dig through some stuff and really break it down and say, listen, you need to go home and think about this. You need to do some study. You need to dig through the word of God. You need to find out who Jesus is. You need to count some costs. If you're going to preach that gospel, you're going to find a lot of people looking for the door. So the dilemma that we face, while we believe and we love the Constitution, I love to talk about the rights that we have and the freedoms that we have. But I'm going to tell you the rights and the, that we have and the freedoms we have are not from God are not to carry guns. That's not the guaranteed liberty from God. We don't have a guarantee to freedom. We know that Paul is writing and working with people who are literally in slavery and telling them how they should act toward their masters. We don't have a right to, to liberty or the pursuit of happiness. That's an American right. It's not a God-given right. And we must be very careful not to confuse that with the gospel. If they come in and take our rights, we have to still preach the gospel. What of the Chinese church who has no rights? What of the Indonesian church that are literally being murdered by the hundreds of thousands through the years? All over Africa. God-given rights are the same to every tribe and tongue. God-given rights cannot be infringed upon. American rights are being infringed upon. What my father and, and your fathers grew up in and, and had, we no longer have those rights. Those rights have gone away. But God-given rights, the freedom that God gives, does not go away. And we need to make sure that we are securing for our children the gospel that cannot be infringed on. And we are a bunch of patriots around here. I love it. We should be. It's one of the things about being a man. But we must be very careful that the message that we are preaching, we can talk about all of that stuff. We can absolutely have tons of discussions about that outside of the church. And I'm not even saying there's never a time to say something political from the pulpit. That's not really my point. The point is the message that must be preached is the revelation of who Jesus is. If we come up short on that, everything else we do is failure. 
everything else we do is failure. So, before us, we have a challenge individually and corporately. We must answer this very pressing question. Are we willing, having counted the cost? Maybe for some of us, we haven't. Maybe we haven't even thought about what it might cost. Dustin was, we were talking the other day. And has anybody ever thought this thought? Would I be able to, if somebody put a gun in my head, say, I'm not going to deny the Lord. Anybody ever thought that? Like, I don't know. That'd be weird. And ever, some people, oh, I would know I would. And other people's, I don't know. I don't really know that that's a fair question. Because what I think that we need to do is realize that if we're worried about offending people over gay rights, we're probably not going to worry too much about proclaiming the gospel with a gun to our head. If we're worried about losing friends in favor, John Maxwell's book, How to Gain Friends and Find Favor, or whatever it was called, if we're worried about that, we're probably not ready to proclaim the truth. So how do we prepare for this? Counting the cost, understanding that it potentially could cost. I'm praying it doesn't. I would love to see that it doesn't. But understanding the potential of what it could cost, are we willing to stand for the truth in light of our job? Some of us did. The vaccine is a spiritual issue for me. It's not just a political issue. How many agree with that? It was, a, it was an issue of faith for me. I felt like it was wrong. Carrie lost her job because of it. Some of you had to quit your jobs because of it. So we have counted some costs. But understanding there's potential. It might lay out there. It might be in front of us. We need to set our hearts and our faces toward Christ. Like they used to say in the old, like Flint. That will not be moved and say, I'm not going to worry about what comes. I can't give you all the hypotheticals of what might approach you and how you might be attacked or, you know, challenged. I think it starts with just the daily simple proclamation of I'm going to live my life out loud. I'm going to proclaim the truth that I know out loud. And if that bothers someone, so be it. I'm not going to apologize for it. I think that's how we prepare for whatever it is that's coming in front of us. Because if we're not faithful in the little, how would we ever be faithful in the big? You don't just all of a sudden become some world changer. You don't all of a sudden lay your, your head down on a lion's mouth. You're willing to make some proclamation that got you into the lion's den. Everybody understand what I'm saying? So I just hope that you're encouraged in this. You must be willing to do whatever it takes to stand against the tide that is beating against the church right now and proclaim the message of who Jesus is. Amen? Pastor, why don't you come tonight?